I'm going to preach on uh, what it means to be saved. The message is not how to be saved, but what it means to be saved. Uh, I just came back to the North American Christian Convention uh, two weeks ago, heart sick. And we don't know what it means to be saved. And what, what, we don't know how to be saved anymore. I heard the plans of salvation that could have been preached in any denomination in the world out there. Very sad. And so I'm embarrassed and humiliated to have to preach like this. But I've come to the conclusion in my old age that uh, we've got to go back to the basics because we've raised up, raised up a generation that doesn't know the basics. You see, we're getting confused today about how to be saved, what is the plan of salvation, because uh, we don't know what it is, what it means to be saved. Do you understand those two separate questions? Amen. How to be saved is one question, but it's built, it rests on what it means to be saved. Now stick with me. And what it means to be saved rests on what it means to be lost. If we don't know what it means to be lost, we're not going to know what it means to be saved. And if we don't know what it means to be saved, we're not going to know how to be saved. Is that clear? Clear to me. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is defending his apostleship. He does this all through the Corinthian letters. I said this morning one of the com most common errors in interpretation of the New Testament, based on and it reflects the Calvinistic commentaries, is that it makes no distinction. It, well, it generalizes specific teachings and promises made to and for the apostles, makes them for everyone. Paul, uh, for instance, glance up at verse 13. He says, now, for uh, if we are uh, beside ourselves or if we are of sober mind, it is for you. If we are beside ourselves or of sober mind, it is for you. We, it's the apostolic we. He's talking about the apostolic office himself. And he is in this, and I don't want to take any more time on this, but in the general context is he, the apostle is celebrating the magnificent thing it is that he has been made an apostle, he has been inspired of God, made an ambassador for Christ, to preach such a glorious message. And you see both elements, the man and the message, his special apostolic commission and the glory of the message. Now, come down to verse 16. <clears throat> so that uh, now we, uh, uh, from now on, no longer consider uh, anyone according to the flesh, as the world sees people. If we have known uh, Christ according to the flesh, now we know him no more. It's not really translated well in most translations. What it really says, this is irony. What Paul, Paul is saying is, if there ever was a time when I, knew, when I thought Christ was just a man, I don't think he's that way anymore. Well, was there ever a time when Paul thought Christ was just a man? There certainly was. He was the number one persecutor of the church. Yes. This is what's called understatement. It doesn't come through in the translation. There ever was. Anybody who, can, who regarded Christ as if he were merely human, it was Paul. But he said, I don't do that anymore. Understatement. So that uh, if uh, anyone is in Christ, he's a, a, a new creation, the old things have come and gone. Behold, the new has, has arrived. The new has come. The new is now. And all this is from God, who has reconciled the world to himself and has given to us, us apostles, the ministry of reconciliation. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which all of us have the ministry of reconciliation, in that we preach the apostolic word. But we do not have the ministry of reconciliation in the same sense that the apostles did. 
as, and as following, we have this ministry of reconciliation, as following, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not reckoning, accounting, we'll come back to that, to them their sins. And he has put in us the word of reconciliation. But most translations say committed to us and the general. No, that's not what it says. He has put in us, placed in us apostles, the word of reconciliation. What is that word of reconciliation? Well, on behalf of Christ, we are being ambassadors. I taught you this, this afternoon about ambassadors. This official spokesman, they, they have the paraclete, the advocate, who has given them uh, the spirit of truth. Jesus promised in John chapter 16, the spirit of truth is in them. They are ambassadors. The word is not their word, it is the word of the king. He meet, uh, if you look, see how uh, Paul uses this argument throughout the Corinthian letters? He's using it in a specialized sense. We are ambassadors, we apostles. Uh, as, the, as though God were beseeching you through us. We are ambassadors as though God were beseeching you through us. An ambassador goes to a foreign court, is the king speaking through the ambassador. We beg on behalf of Christ, and here is, his, here is the word of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. This is the word of the king. Be reconciled to God. Now, note this. He is telling them what the message is. He is not calling upon them to be reconciled because he's writing to the church. He's not saying to the church, be reconciled to God. They were already reconciled to God. He's saying he has committed to us this word of reconciliation as though God were beseeching you through us. We exhort you on behalf of Christ. This is our message. This is what we preach to the whole world. Be reconciled to God. Note how he says God is, God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so we say to you on behalf of the king, be reconciled to God. That's our message. Let me come to this tremendous verse. The whole gospel is in this one verse. What it means to be lost, what it means to be saved. He says, this is, this is how God has reconciled the world to himself. First of all, it says, he, in the English translations, which is accurate. He. He made him who knew no sin. Most translations read. He. Who is the he? God. The king. The one who is has delivered the word of reconciliation. Who in Christ reconciled the world to himself, potentially? He, the one with whom there is enmity. You see, reconciliation is the opposite of enmity. Genesis 3.15, the protoevangelium, after the sin of man, God says, I will put enmity, says to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Enmity is between God and man. Enmity between man and Satan. And Reconciliation solves that. What does it mean to be lost? You see, the common conception of what it means to be lost is to be in a mess. Well, he sure is lost. Why? Well, look how his life isn't working. To have a bad conscience. To feel guilty. Now, lost people often are in a mess. Many times their lives don't work. They have a bad conscience. Well, they ought to. And sometimes they feel guilty, but sometimes they don't. But hear me, that is not what it means to be lost. Your life can be in a mess. Your life may not work. You either, but whether you feel guilty about it or not has nothing to do with anything. You see, when we talk, when the Bible says a man is lost, now hear me, it speaks of a condition that exists in the mind of God. This He made Him to be, to, to be sin for us. He is the offended God. He is the God with whom we must be reconciled. 
Man's heart is bad. But his bad heart is not what causes him to be lost. Lost, the word lost, speaks of a condition that exists in the mind of God, not in the heart of man. Did you get that? Man is not lost because his heart is bad. He's lost because he has offended the absolutely righteous God. When I say the absolutely righteous God, I mean absolutely righteous in this sense. God cannot commit sin. God cannot ultimately, eternally permit sin. Absolutely righteous. Now, we are relatively righteous. Some of us are more righteous than others. We can always find somebody that we're more righteous than. I don't have to look very far. Nor does he. <laughs> but you see, God is absolutely righteous. To be lost speaks of a condition that exists in the mind of God. Now hear me, to be lost means to be guilty before God, to be in the path of the wrath of God, the pursuing wrath of God. To be lost does not mean, contrary to a lot of popular so-called gospel songs, to be lost does not mean to be abandoned by God. To be lost means to be pursued by the wrath of God. The Greeks talked about the hound of hell. The Bible suggests the concept of the hound of heaven. You see, the, the wrath of God is a seeking wrath. And the wrath of God, because he is absolutely righteous, cannot ignore sin. He does not abandon the sinner. He pursues the sinner. The wrath of God catches every man. It will either catch him at the cross or catch him at judgment. But no man will leave the wrath of God behind. The wrath of God does not ignore us. The wrath of God prosecutes us. To be lost means to be guilty in the mind of God. We are lost because God views us as lost. Why? Because he is absolutely righteous and we are desperate sinners. To be lost is to be guilty in the mind of God, not to be messed up in ourselves. We are messed up, but that's not what causes us to be lost. One of, the things that's one of the reasons we're having such a low level of spirituality in this generation of the church is we're making a fundamental error, in my opinion. See, biblical uh, human religion looks at God through the eyes of man. Biblical religion looks at man through the eyes of God. If we look at God through the eyes of man, we will take advantage of the grace of God. We will sin that grace may abound. I had a session recently in which I did this teaching in, about the requirements of the absolutely righteous God and one of the leading preachers in the brotherhood couldn't wait to get to me and remind me of his grace. You see, but the grace of God is in Christ Jesus. The grace of God does not permit us to play around with the plan of salvation because a man does not, a man does not have the grace of God until he's in Christ Jesus. And the grace of God if we look at, you see, what we do is, we are, our, our culture has become feminized and it has become sentimentalized and we look at man through the eyes of God and we forgive anything. Surely God wants us to be happy. Divorce isn't nearly the sin we thought it was going to, we thought it was. The, the, plant, the standards of righteousness aren't, why? Well, God will just forgive. So we look at God through the eyes of man and let man get away with almost anything. Biblical religion looks at man through the eyes of God. And we start, this biblical religion starts with God, not with man. And to be lost means that God views us as having offended him. We are lost, not because we feel bad, 
Many people who are lost feel great. They're not guilty at all. I don't feel guilty. Whether you feel guilty or not has nothing to do with whether we are guilty or not. We are guilty if God says we are. To be lost, move on now. He, he who, he God, this offended God who has committed, who has sent his ambassador to say, I have, even though you, I, you stand in, my, in the path of my wrath, I have worked out a plan of reconciliation. Let's go on. He made him who knew no sin. Now, it says made. I'm going to come back to this later in detail. Let me mention here. The word there can be translated, he reckoned, he considered. Or it can mean, can mean he actually made. In this case, it means he considered him to be sin. God made him to be sin. This word is used, for instance, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, where Paul says, I consider my life to be worth nothing. I count it. He, God made him who knew no sin. Who was, we know who God is. Who is the one who knew no sin? Well, we know who that is, too. The sinless Christ. The one who pleased God in every respect and kept the law on our behalf. God made him to be sin. Where? When? How? Well, the answer to the two answers. First of all, on the cross. God made him to be sin on the cross. Yes, let me teach it this way by asking a question. Fill in the blanks. Answer this question in your mind. Who crucified Jesus? Ultimately. If you had to say, beyond ultimate, understand, in the final analysis, when push comes to shove, if you had to write on a piece of paper the person or persons who is ultimately responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, what would you write? Well, some would write Satan. Satan crucified Jesus. Satan was certainly involved. He entered the heart of Judas. Some would blame Judas himself because he betrayed him. Some would blame the Jews. And that certainly was grounds for that, isn't it? We studied, we studied that in the, in the morning hour, that the Jews were held guilty by God because, as a nation because they rejected the Messiah and put him to death. Some would blame the Romans. The Romans crucified him. Well, there was Roman nails and a Roman cross, certainly. Oh, you see, no. Ultimately, though, even though there is guilt for, the, for Judas and for Satan and for the Jews as a nation and for the Romans, really we crucified him, right? We crucified. Absolutely false. Listen, it was not our plan, and if we'd have had the plan, we would not have had the man. He was crucified for us. We crucified him only in the sense he was he died for us. Listen, the Bible says that God crucified him. God made him to be sin for us, our text says. Isaiah 53, we did esteem him smitten of God and afflicted. In the first gospel sermon, Peter says, by the predetermined plan of God, you nailed him to a cross. The book of Romans says, God set him forth to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen, God crucified Jesus. Ultimately. What does it mean to be lost? You see, we've offended God, and we had no way to work out a plan of salvation, so God did it for us. God crucified his son. God made him to be sin for us on the cross. You recall, now note this, he, he, he regarded him as our sin. First, The first answer to my question is, where did he become our sin? Did God make him to be sin for us? It's on the cross, secondly, in his own mind. Listen, 
he was our sin because God in his sovereign will chose to view him as our sin. He was our sin in the mind of God where we're lost. Understand? Our guilt exists in the mind of God. On the cross, Jesus was our sin in the mind of God. Now hear me. When Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because at that moment, and we do not, and we do not know how long that moment was, in the mind of his Father, he was our sin. Now he was our sin in the mind of God. God imputed our sin to him. He reckoned our sin to him. He accounted in his own mind our sin to him. Note this. He did not smear our sin on him. He did not infuse our sin into him. No dark cloud of human evil descended on the cross, and so Jesus breathed it in. He was our sin because God sovereignly chose to view him that way. Aren't you glad? Because we're lost in the mind of God. In the mind of God, that was our sin. See, Jesus was the Savior from God. Next question. Where did Jesus offer his blood? You believe that Jesus was a sacrifice? That Jesus paid, that, that he paid the debt? You believe that Jesus paid the debt for our sin? Of course you do. Who did he pay the debt to? Listen, he didn't pay it to Satan. Because Satan never owned it. He paid it to God. Look, Hebrews 9:12, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered what? The holy place. What was the holy place? The presence of God for all, once for all, having obtained, obtained eternal redemption for us. Hear me. We are saved, by the, when we say, when the Bible teaches, we are saved by the death of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, it's saying the same thing. These are synonymous terms. When the Bible teaches that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, it means we are saved by the fact of his death. It means we are saved, now hear me, Christian, we are saved by the blood, Amen. What the Bible means by that language is that we are saved by the fact that God in his own mind, where we are lost, he viewed the death of Jesus on the cross as a substitute for our eternal death. The blood itself, the actual physical blood, flowed from his body and down the cross into the dust of Palestine for all I know it's still there. We contact the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, and the Bible uses these terms synonymously. Saved by his death, saved by his blood, we are baptized into what? His death. Say it one more time. Blood equals death. It, it was, it was, it, they, were, they were synonymous when used in this kind of context. But where, listen to me, where and how was the death of Jesus on the cross a substitute for our eternal death? The answer is, in the mind of God, God worked out the plan. In the predetermined plan of God, Jesus gave up his life, and the Jews and the Romans took it. But it was the predetermined plan of God. Jesus came from God. He was God's Christ. He's our Savior. He was sacrificed because God said he was. Don't ask, did you ever wonder how the death of one man on a cross could equal the eternal death for all people who have ever lived? I don't know. I don't care. All I do is celebrate the fact that God says it's true. Why? He reckoned it. He accounted. It satisfied him. Therefore, I'm saved by the death of Jesus. I don't have to die. You understand? The wrath of God either catches you at the cross or it catches you at judgment, but catch you at will. 
that we, the text in it, God made him to be sin. God, in whose mind we are lost, made him to be sin on the cross, in his own mind. He viewed it this way. That, that he who knew no sin, that we, we are the sinners. Sin exists in us as habit, as experience, as tendency, and as feelings of guilt. It does not exist in us like a tumor on our liver. You understand? You cannot form an autopsy on a man and find his sin in him like it was some kind of growth. I'll say it again. Sin exists in us as habit, experience, tendency, feelings of guilt. But our sin exists in the mind of God. These are just the results of our sin. We are the sinners. I'm going to come back to that. The next phrase is that we might become, the most translations say be made in the Greek, it's become the righteousness of God in him. I love this. Now, I'm going to say something to you. Ready? I, I hope I didn't, I think I shook some of you up when I said that God crucified Jesus, but that's what the Bible teaches. I'll shake you up again. Ready? There isn't going to be anybody in heaven who's not as righteous as God is. You said what? I said there isn't going to be anybody in heaven who's not as righteous as God is. Why do you say that? Well, God is absolutely righteous. Therefore, there isn't going to be anybody in heaven who's not absolutely righteous. You sure about that? Yeah, I'm sure about that. Well, hell, leaves me out. <laughs> yes, it leaves all of us out. It leaves all of us, all of us out, doesn't it? No. Look at what the text says. That we might be made what? The righteousness of God. You see, God is absolutely righteous, and therefore nobody can be in his presence who's not absolutely righteous. And therefore, God's plan of reconciliation is that we be made the righteousness of God. I stand before you tonight the righteousness of God. I'm as righteous as Jesus is. In the mind of God. Now, in myself, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, just like you are. But God views me, I'll come in, because I'm in Christ, God views me as being the righteousness of, his, of himself. Why? Because he viewed Jesus as being my sin. He reckoned it. He accounted it. Now, let's go on. Now, hear me very clearly. God is not, is not relative. He's absolutely righteous in the mind of God. Where we are lost, there we are the righteousness of God. You got that? In the mind of God, where we are lost, there we are the righteousness of God. And this is the good news. Look at, back up at verse 19. As though God, because God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not, what's that next word? Reckoning, accounting to them their own sin. That word means, is based on the root word to speak. I love it. It means, you understand, to declare. We are, the right, we are declared to be the righteousness of God. What? God says we are. It's, a, it, it's the spoken, announced righteousness. It says God has... It means God has simply said in his own mind, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Isn't that great? Not in us. He accounts it. It's called reckoning. It's called justification. In ourselves, we are lost. In Christ, we are the righteousness of God. This is, you see, why the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel doesn't tell us how to live a better life. The gospel tells us what to be do, what to do since we haven't and can't. The Bible doesn't tell us how to be better only. False traditions do that. The Bible tells us that secondarily. Primarily, the Bible tells us how to be forgiven. Justified. 
in the mind of God, forgiven. Where does forgiveness take place? Take place in the mind of God. Is this making sense to you? Well, stick with me. I'm not through. Brother, I reject holiness theology. I reject publicly and as loud as I can say it, the doctrine of salvation in personal righteousness. We are not saved by personal righteousness. We are saved by imputed righteousness, declared righteousness, reckoned righteousness. I am saved not because I am good. I am saved because God has said I am. He has reckoned it to me. He has reckoned the righteousness of Christ to me. That's Christianity. Now, the last phrase, in him. It's all in him. God, this absolutely righteous God, on the cross made Jesus to be our sin in his own mind, where we're lost, that we might be made the righteousness of God in the mind of God, if what? If we're in him. Salvation is in him. You see, it's in him. Now, we must distinguish between the work of God in us and the work of God for us. Does God work in us? He most magnificently does. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you'll do what? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God works in us to change us. And the work of God in us is a marvelous work. But hear me, we are not saved by the work of God in us. We are saved by the work of God for us. We are not saved by anything that God does in us. We are saved by what he did for us, in spite of us, because of us, at the cross, and outside of us. The gift of the Holy Spirit does not save us. The cross saves us. The gift of the Holy Spirit does not save us. The, blood, the death or the blood of Jesus saves us. You got that? Is that clear? God works out... You see, the work of God, the work that God does in us, the Bible calls sanctification. The work that God did for us, outside of us, and because of us, inside of us, is called justification. And we are saved in justification. We are not saved in sanctification. We are not we are saved in imputed righteousness, not in personal righteousness. In sanctification, we have a personal righteousness, but it's like filthy rags and cannot save us. You understand? We are saved by the righteousness of Christ, that and nothing else. Hope that's clear. You see, we are not co-redeemers. We don't help God. In Christ is grace, position, justification, salvation. Union with Christ is the comprehensive biblical description. And the Bible says we are in Christ and Christ is in us. It's, it's saying exactly the same thing. From God's point of view, it is declaration, imputation, reckoning, speaking. He declares us to be righteous in Christ because we cannot be righteous in ourselves. From our point of view, it's faith so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. You understand? Faith. We are saved by grace through what? Faith. Faith is man looking up. Grace is God looking down. And we are justified. You see, the new birth produces change, but that change is not salvation. To be saved is to be forgiven, not to be changed. And what must I do to be in Christ? If, if all this, if imputed righteousness, declared righteousness, is in Christ, how do I get in Christ? Now, now let's, let's back up and see where we are. What does it mean to be lost? To be guilty in the mind of God. Jesus was our sin. Where? On the cross, in the mind of God. God viewed him that way. So God where? In the mind of God. 
How do you get in Christ? Uh, hear me, you're in Christ when God says you're in Christ. Not when you feel like you're in Christ. When God says you're in Christ. Understand? We're lost because God says we are, no matter how we feel. Jesus is our is our substitute dyer. He died in our place, and we had nothing to do with that. We are the righteousness of God because God says we are, no matter how we feel about it. And we are in Christ when God says we are, no matter how we feel about it. And the Bible is very clear. We look at that's a new birth. What must I do to be? Do you understand? What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be saved? It, to be lost means to be guilty in the mind of God. To be saved means to be forgiven, justified, declared righteous. Then how am I saved? The third question. Well, the Bible is very clear about that. We've all, I've already quoted Acts 2.38. 20, Acts 22, verse 16. And now why tarriest thou and rise to be baptized and wash away your sins? Where? In the mind of God. See, calling on the name of the Lord. Romans 6. Know you not that as many of us as have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? First Peter and John 3 and the rest of them, we know those verses. You see, when we obey the gospel, a transaction takes place in the mind of God. He, be, he at that point views us in him. Well, what saves us? The death of Jesus. How are we into the death of Jesus? Baptized into the death of Jesus. You understand? We're in him the way he says we're in him and when he says we're in him and not until we have obeyed the gospel. Tell me how you feel. How you feel has nothing whatever to do with your being lost, and brother has nothing whatever to do with your being saved. Amen. Now, that's clarity. But in the, in the intervening centuries, there has come confusion in, in answering the question, what must I do to be saved? Now, we have, an, we have the ambassador's answer, the king. This is the ambassador. God is in us. He's put his word of reconciliation in us. We speak on behalf of the king, Paul says. We have authority, and here's the word. This is how you're saved. But you see, the word of the ambassador has been lost in the intervening centuries. The way the, the, state, the uh, intellectual context of the ancient world was Greek, and I'm not going to go into this in great, in great detail except to say this, that Augustine, the, the uh, theologian of the early centuries, who's the, who's the theological father of the Roman Catholic Church, equally the theological father of, the Protest of Protestantism. He was a Greek-thinking man. He was a Neoplatonist and a Manichaeist. And, and, and the, the part of that Greek-thinking which is important to this study is this, that they viewed, the Greeks viewed evil as a quality of the physical world. The physical world is evil because it is physical. The physical world is intrinsically evil. They're the ones who, they were the substitute Christ, the Antichrist that John deals with in his epistles. Who is the Antichrist? The one who denies that Jesus came what? In the flesh. See, they said Jesus couldn't come in the flesh. Why? Then he would be, a, he would be sinful. They denied the incarnation, they said, because the flesh is intrinsically evil. You cannot be in the flesh without being evil. And so they said the real Christ didn't come in the flesh. He just appeared to. Now, that way of looking at the physical world came out in Christian theology. Now, hear me. It's a doctrine of original sin. It says that a child, the, by virtue of the physical birth, is born into the world evil. Guilty of Adam's sin, corrupt, and his mind is, is well as bound. Now, listen very closely. And the doctrine of being lost. And right at the beginning I said, what you believe about what it means to be lost will determine what you mean, what you believe about what it means to be saved, and that will determine how you're saved. The doctrine of what it means to be lost changed. You see, with Augustine, what it meant to be lost 
simply meant to be born into the physical world, original sin. And the doctrine of lostness was moved from the mind of God to the heart of man. You got that? In historic theology, the doctrine of lostness was moved from the mind of God to the heart of man. And what it meant to be saved, therefore, meant miraculous regeneration. According to the new theory of salvation, God, through the Holy Spirit, comes in and performs divine surgery. He roots out the inborn sin, reverses the will, cleans up the mess, like the surgical remover of a tumor from the liver. Now salvation takes place in man. They begin to baptize babies. No need for faith. Why? Well, you see, if you have the water, it's called ex opere operato. If you have the right water and an ordained man says it with the right Latin, then the baby is changed. Baptismal regeneration, miraculous regeneration, infused grace through the sacraments. The Protestant Reformation kept original sin, kept in, kept a miraculous regeneration, and we have and here and so now we have the Protestant plan of salvation. How are you saved? Ask Jesus into your heart. He will come in, bring his blood with him. Sound familiar? Presumably in a bucket. He'll rub it on your sin. You'll be saved. He'll, it's like, I call it wart removal theology. He'll rub it on the tumor in your liver. Take it away and you'll be saved. How do you know? We have a sugar in your liver. I know I'm saved. Well, I don't care what you say about Acts 2.38. Forty years ago, the Lord came in and saved me. The Lord did not come in and save you because you were not lost in you. The Bible doesn't say that. Nowhere does the Bible say that. You see, salvation takes place in Catholic theology and in Protestant theology in man. In man. In biblical theology, it takes place in the mind of God. Amen. You see, now hear me, I'm going to try to make this as clear as I can. The sacrifice, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin, the sacrifice became a blood donor. Imputed righteousness became transfused righteousness, infused grace. Leitch, I'm giving two examples very quick. Leitch, in his book, Interpreting Basic Theology, he writes, We are to be united to salvation, what it means to be saved. We are to be united with him, caught up in his life, there as if by a great transfusion, the blood of Christ keeps cleansing us from sin. Just hook me up, brother, and I'll be saved. Listen, the blood of Christ does not flow into our veins. The blood of Christ mingled with the dust of Palestine. We are not saved by having the blood of Christ rubbed on us or in us. We're saved by the fact of his death and the fact that God's accepted that death as a substitute for our death. Another source. Henry Drummond in his book, Natural Law and the Spiritual World, listen to this. This is what it means to be saved. The death-struck sinner, like a wan, anemic, dying invalid, is saved, is saved by having poured into his veins the healthier blood of Christ. Brother, that is dark paganism. The Living Bible translates 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Living Bible. The Living Bible reminds me of Christian science, grape nuts, flakes, and neo-orthodoxy. You know, grape nuts is... we got a cereal called grape nuts. It's neither grapes nor nuts. We have a religion called Christian science that's neither Christian nor science. 
We have a theological trend called neo-orthodoxy that's neither new nor orthodox. And you have the living Bible, which isn't living and isn't the Bible. And the sad, the sad thing is, at the North American, this one of the evening sessions, a good brother had a very wonderful message on evangelism, one of the best I've ever heard. And then he came to the end, and he ended it with this verse. And he said, oh, he said, I love the Living Bible translation because it says it just right. Here's the Living Bible translation of 2 Corinthians 5. You know, I touch of Protestant theology, the sacrifice becomes the blood donor. Salvation takes place in man, not in the mind of God. Becomes infused righteousness rather than imputed righteousness. Are you keeping those straight? Here's the Living Bible. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sin. Then in exchange, he poured God's righteousness into us. Brother, that's not, first of all, that's not what the Greek says. Secondly, it's absolute nonsense. Now hear me. We are not saved when the righteousness of God is infused in us. Jesus cannot come into our hearts and save us because we're not lost in our hearts. Jesus does not bring his blood into our hearts and save us. He took his blood to God where we're lost and offered his death in the, in the holy place as an efficient sacrifice and substitute for our eternal death. Brother, that's as clear as I know how to make it. You see the reason that we're losing the plan of salvation in our generation. We've got so many preachers preaching miraculous regeneration is because they don't know what it means to be lost. You see, now hear me, if miraculous regeneration, huh, the Holy Spirit coming in, applying the blood in some metaphysical, mysterious way, rooting out inborn sin, reversing the will, if that's what salvation is, if it's a miracle, miraculous regeneration, then baptism cannot be for the remission of sin. The reason we're not communicating with the denominational world is we're, to, we're saying you must be baptized to be saved, and they think we're saying the water changes us miraculously. And we know that isn't true, and so they reject it. You see, we're not ready to talk about what the Bible says about baptism until we've established what the Bible talks about being lost and what it means to be saved. We're not, we're not even talking the same language. Do you know that? A good Baptist, when we say you must be baptized to be saved, he thinks we mean baptismal regeneration, the water coming in and washing away that inbred sin. We don't mean that, do we? No. But hear me, we must never ab abandon the plan of salvation. And I'm just about finished. We are not saved when the righteousness of God is infused in us, but when it's imputed to us. He did not reckon their sin to them, our text says. Salvation is not by mystical union, neither by miraculous regeneration. Salvation is by faith. Our Restoration Fathers worked all this out. We've just quit reading their books. The Restoration Fathers used their principles to discover the fallacies of Augustinian and Calvinistic theology. And the old Jerusalem gospel was once again heard in the land. The doctrine of imputed righteousness, salvation by faith, baptism for the remission of sin. How beautiful. And it needs to be heard again. Hear me. The only plan for being in him is the plan delivered by the ambassadors because they spoke the word of the king and they and they alone had the authority. Brother, I accept no other plan of salvation than the one the New Testament gives us because no other plan of salvation comes from the king. And all the rest of them come from men.
And we have no right to change it. You understand that? The only plan for being in him is being immersed into him upon repentance for the remission of sins. We have no authority to, san to sanction any other. Hear me, the road to heaven goes by Golgotha. Understand? If you want to go to heaven, you have to go God's way to obeying the gospel and through the death of Christ, contact in the mind of God, the cross. The only way to heaven is by Golgotha, where the cross is. And on the cross, God made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Phew! Mm, I saw the bottom side of the Titanic tonight. All right. Yes, sir. I tell you, I pushed up the silt clear to the bottom. And he took us down into the Word tonight, didn't he? He sure did. He sure did. And uh, thank God we can go down deep. And we need to go down deep and we need to get out and tell it like it is. We'd like to have the men to come forward, please, that have been designated for.